that button. And there's my secretary, Sherry. Um, we are in James chapter two. I usually like to give you a little backstory of where we've been in the book of James. James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, same, uh, same mother, different father. Um, and the book of James, five little chapters, is very much written in the style of Proverbs in some ways. It closely parallels the Sermon on the Mount and closely parallels 1 John, the book of 1 John. The book of James is a series of tests for people professing faith in Christ to ask themselves, themselves, how am I doing in this area? Oh, and that area, that's sort of the back view of where we've been. Um, let's see, last week we heard you don't just listen to the word, which is the scriptures, be doers of the word. And that's gonna come up in a big way tonight as well. <clears throat> we will learn tonight about controlling our tongues, what we say, how, and how important that is. Uh, last week, we heard that we're supposed to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's a tough one in and of itself, isn't it? Last week, we learned about not showing favoritism based on, oh, here comes a really rich guy. Let's give him a good seat and kick the poor guy who's got no shoes to the back of the auditorium totally against the way Jesus would handle people. It's the opposite of the way he would do so. Uh, and um, so we're going to have a long discussion tonight about faith and saving faith. And is there any other kind of faith? And where do works come into the equation of salvation? Some people have made the simple equation, salvation equals faith, like it was a math equation, salvation equals faith. Is that it? He's going to cover that tonight and other things. Anyway, so that I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Oh, that's a good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Okay, beautiful. Can't hear you, but I, I bet you said it. All right, James chapter 2. So uh, let's see, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 which is a command and says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has, let's see, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone yeah, who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, the audience of this book he says in verse one of James that it's to the 12 tribes scattered around the world. Doesn't mean just Jews. He's writing to Christians who were previously Jews and have now come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so he's saying there a word about conduct, you know, to speak and act like those who are going to be judged by the law that brings freedom. On the one hand, the law of Christ supersedes the Old Testament law. Jesus fulfilled the law. We're no longer under the law, but that doesn't give us a license to do whatever we want. This is what he's going to be talking about mostly and what we're going to talk about tonight. Instead, it gives freedom, but we are to speak and act like people who are going to be judged by Christ's law. And we'll get into that as we go. So our, the way we speak and the way we act matters. Another book that parallels this is the book of Titus, where you learn that our deeds really do 
matter. It's not all head knowledge. Um, later tonight, we'll talk about the wrong way to spell cat. I know we've told, talked about this before, K-A-T. I'll explain what that is uh, when we get there. Why are we to speak and act that way, James? Verse 13, because judgment without mercy. You don't want that. Imagine being before a judge, the judge of the universe, God, and he's not going to have any mercy, which that's the case for anyone who hasn't been merciful. Parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, and the measure that you have used to judge others, it'll be judged, you'll be judged the same way. So um, we are to be showing mercy to others. Translation, it's another way of saying grace. The two are close cousins. They're not the same thing, but it is giving to others the grace that you've received vertically from God outward. Well, but that woman, she drives me crazy and she doesn't deserve it. You drove God crazy and you didn't deserve it, right? What you got from him, we're supposed to be giving the same way. Yes, but I don't want to show her mercy or him mercy. He's made me so angry and he's hurt me. You've hurt God with your sin. Remember, David, against you and you only have I sinned, God, uh, David says. He showed you mercy. We're supposed to show the same mercy. Okay, mercy triumphs over judgment. Later tonight, we're going to talk about judgment. And we've said this before in this Bible study that there are two judgments. One is Revelation 20 for unbelievers. That's where books are opened and every single thing they ever said or did or even thought that was against God's will, that was a hamartia, fancy word, you know what it means? Sin. Everything that was against God's will will be judged for unbelievers. They will pay for their sins. It's only right. God's a just judge. However, there's another judgment that gets forgotten. We'll look at a scripture in um, 1 Corinthians that talks about it, and also 2 Corinthians later tonight. That second judgment is for believers. You say, well, I thought we weren't going to be judged for our sin. I didn't say you're going to be judged for your sin, but there is a judgment for believers. For unbelievers, think of it as a courtroom, a criminal courtroom. They're going to be judged according to what they said, did, or thought that was against God's will. You got that? Believers, separate judgment, okay? Before Jesus Christ, will my sins get mentioned? Absolutely not. Do you know why? Because Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. That matter is settled it's done, forgotten. Don't get to heaven and start apologizing to God for what you did on September 8th, 1997. That was so bad. He's going to go, I don't even remember what that is. I already forgave that. My son paid. Why are you not forgiving yourself for what my son took, your punishment? However, there is a judgment for believers. Oh no, you say. Think of this one, not as a criminal courtroom. Think of it in a way as an awards ceremony. Okay, Academy Awards, Emmys, Grammys, those have become so secular now. I almost am sorry I mentioned those, but it is a dispensing by Christ of rewards to Christians for work that was done. It's not salvation. You're already in heaven for works that were done, that were done by you, not for this. You know what that is? 
self-aggrandizement. I want the credit. Yes, I painted the whole church myself. You know, I even bought the paint. Oh, I did it for God's glory. No, you didn't. Or you wouldn't be telling everybody, right? That sort of thing, the book of Corinthians, one of the Corinthian books says, those works are burned up like hay and stubble. Hay, wood, stubble. But the person that painted the church and you come in and say, boy, it looks great. Who did it? And everyone says, no one knows. That guy did it for God's glory. Do you see the difference? There will be loss of rewards or rewards given at this award ceremony. But it's all for believers. They're all saved. Just wanted to go through that. Okay. Now that you're totally asleep, let's move on, shall we? Verse 14. New subject. Faith and works. Before we go there, I want to tell you, this is controversial. Oh, no. Scholars have had problems with this. Martin Luther had a huge problem with this section of James. By the end of his life, though, he realized that James and Paul don't disagree. They actually are attacking a problem from two different angles. What's the problem? Keep your finger in James. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 real quickly. And we're going to look at some other scriptures. We're going to turn some pages. So to the left from James, maybe nine books. That's a guess. You know this passage. It's pretty, it might, might be the clearest place where salvation is explained. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay, stop right there. How does a person get saved? First of all, by grace. What does that mean? It means you can't deserve it. You don't earn it. It's a gift. You understand? Grace, okay? By grace, you've been saved through faith. Believing. Okay, got it. That's how we're saved, okay? And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. The gift of God refers to the last noun, which is the faith, which means you can't even take credit for, boy, am I faithful. I have more faith than most of these people. God unto each is given a measure of faith, the book of Romans says. What we do with it, it's like exercising. The more you exercise faith, the more the faith grows. So how are we saved? By faith. Got it. And it's not from me. It's the gift of God. Tell us more about salvation, Paul. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. What do you mean by works? Works are both negative and positive, we said last week and the week before. What do you mean by that? Positive works are doing good deeds, taking care of widows and uh, orphans. He mentioned that earlier in this gospel. Uh, feeding the poor, giving to a church, forgiving people when they sin against you, um, all kinds of good things you can do, serving God in some way, okay? He's saying here, that's not what saves you. It's faith. You got the picture? How are works negative? That's positive. Negative is this, a changed life, repentance. So-and-so, we'll call him Harold here, used to be an alcoholic, heroin addict, male prostitute, thief. He's come to Christ. How long has he been a Christian? 10 years. What's he like now? He serves in a church, never touches alcohol or drugs, doesn't do that whole sexual thing anymore. He's a changed guy. 
He's abstaining from the bad stuff. God says, don't do this, don't do that, thou shalt not. Negative, positive works. You with me so far? Paul's point, that's not what saves you. That's not what justifies you. It's faith. Okay. What we're about to read in James is going to sound like the two of them completely disagree. Go back to James now. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? That means he's writing to Christians, brothers and sisters. What good is it if someone claims or says they have faith, but has no works, no deeds? Can such faith save them? Can that faith save them? He's saying in a hypothetical situation, imagine someone who says, oh, no, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And when you get to know them, you find out that like Harold, they used to be an alcoholic, drug user, thief, all that other stuff. And they've been a Christian how long? 10 years. And this person says, well, I, I still use drugs. And I, I was drunk about an hour and a half ago, but I'm pretty sober now. And I'm still stealing at work, but um, I believe in Jesus. Okay. And do you go to church? No, not really. You read the word now? Once in a while, no works. But he says he's a Christian. I'm going to call this a said faith as opposed to a real faith. What, what James is saying here, first of all, is someone's got a question, but what James is saying, first of all, is if someone claims to have faith, they say they have faith, right? Does that make them a Christian? The answer is no. No more than if you stand in a garage, that doesn't make you a car, or if you swim in a lake, that doesn't make you a duck, right? Or a fish. The proof is something else. Ken, what's your question? Nice and loud, and then I have to repeat it. Oh, I already did. Oh, wonderful. I got the ESP thing going. Appreciate it. Um, great minds think alike. What good is it? He's saying the, the implied answer is it's not. So the guy says he's a Christian, but there's no deeds. In other words, Christianity, J John three, remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus cuts him short and says, I tell you the truth. You must be born again. Remember? You got to be born all over again, spiritually, not physically, spiritually. With birth comes growth. Remember my analogy? See this little, new, little tiny little baby with a bottle and diapers? Yes. How old? Is that your son? Yes. How old is he? He's 24 years old. Something's wrong, right? No growth. With birth comes growth. Our friend who says they're a Christian and yet there's no change in his life. The answer is, what kind of faith is that? We're about to hear it's dead. Not sick. He's going to use the word dead. Okay, so what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and has no deeds? Here it comes. Can that faith or such faith save them? Remember, Paul? It's just faith. We're not saved by works. So do they disagree? Would Paul say, yes, this guy's saved? I don't think so. I'll show you that in a second. But let's keep reading so we get the context, and then we'll talk about it more. Can such faith save them? Now he's going to give you a uh, hypothetical what if. Suppose, verse 15, a brother or sister is without clothes 
and daily food, okay? Destitute. If one of you, verse 16, says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by deeds, action, it is what? Dead. Not sick. Dead. Okay. Let's go back. The, the, the hypothetical situation is there's a brother or sister. In this context, it's a fellow Christian. Okay. And the person, let's make it me, I know about their situation, that they're very, very poor. I also know I have enough food and clothing. I could help them. But instead of actually helping them with food and clothing and whatever else they need, shelter, I give them some empty religious words, basically. Here they are. Go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed. God bless you. Some people in that situation, you know what they do? I'll pray for you as a substitute for action because nobody wants to get out their wallet or go, I'll go through my closet and get you some clothing. And, but this is the heart of Christianity is love. And so you can say all the religious words you want, but if you don't help somebody when you know about the situation and you're able to help them, how do you know he knows? Because he says, go in peace, keep warm. They're wishing, he's wishing on them. I hope you're warmer than you are now, you poor homeless guy with no clothes or gal with no clothes and well-fed. Nothing about the physical deeds. He's saying, what good is it? Well, what's the answer? It's not any good, is it? The person watches the, other, the Christian guy walk away and says, well, I'm still hungry. I'm still cold and need of clothing. King James has naked, by the way, here, I believe. And it doesn't mean they're like walking around naked. It just means they don't have adequate clothing to keep warm in the winter, whatever it may be. The point is no action, but the person is professing Christ. How do you know that? Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. Nice religious words, no help. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now we learn there's different kinds of faith, living faith, which is the real deal, and dead faith. Is dead faith still faith? No. Let me show you what I mean. Imagine there is a tremendous gasoline shortage, okay? I mean, there's no gas available. All the pumps in our town are empty. And I really, really need to go somewhere 100 miles away. So I announced to you guys, look, I really need a favor. Does anybody have a horse that I could borrow? And uh, Ken back there raises his hand and says, Joe, come to my house tomorrow. I've got a horse. And I think, great. Now I can get, to, I really have to go that hundred miles. The next day I walk to Ken's house and I say, hey, thank you for loaning me your horse. Where is he? And Ken points to a little cross in the ground and says, here he is. He was a good horse. And I say, wait, this is your horse in, in the grave? Is he dead? And you say, yeah, he died four years ago. But he'll always be my horse. And I say, 
So it's a dead horse, which for my needs is what? No horse at all, right? It's not a lousy horse. It's no horse. I've not been, I've wasted walking to his house and he lives far from me. The point is faith without works, the works are the evidence, the proof that we believe that faith is dead because there's been no change. Why hasn't there been a change? Why is the person able to say to the person in need, oh, go in peace, God bless you and be warm and fed and not do anything? It's an evidence to me that the Holy Spirit ain't in there because if it was, it would give the person the compassion, the caring, the love to want to do something, right? Um, I'm going to wait on the cat, K-A-T thing, just to keep your interest. Um, those of you that are still awake. Okay, that's a said faith. You meet people all the time, don't you? I know I do. Talk, I teach a Bible study on Tuesday nights. Would you like to come? Oh, yeah. Great. No. I believe in God, though. That's all you need to do, right? Is just believe in God. Is it? Does belief in the definition of faith require more than just this? I got the knowledge. I believe some of you are nodding yes, and you're right. Right? I, um, let's say that um, Boyce here built me this stool that I'm sitting on and said, hey, I made you a stool for Bible study to sit on. I thought, thank you so much, Boyce. And he brings it over to my house and says, do you want to try it out? And I say, no. And, and he says, well, you believe that it'll hold your weight, don't you? And I say, yeah, yeah, I do. He says, well, I'll bring it down to the church. So he brings it to the church here, but he notices I'm using this stool, not his, which is over there. And he says, why don't you use my stool? And I say, uh, oh, that's okay. And he's, no, really. And he switches the stools out. And you start noticing that I'm using his stool, but I'm, I've got one foot on the ground. As if I don't believe it'll hold my weight. Faith would say, I believe this stool will hold my weight. Both, my whole body's here. Not one cheek, the whole body. Right? Faith works itself out in action. I believe this chair will hold my weight, this stool. Here I am sitting on it like this. If I'm wrong, I'm going to go flying, and that's on him, right? And I'll call my lawyer and sue you, boys. No, just kidding. Um, the point is, faith is the evidence of salvation. We'll talk more about that in a second as well. The Jews had come from... Judaism, in which they had all kinds of things they had to do, D-O, right? There was the Ten Commandments. There were all the dietary laws. There was the certain way you're supposed to wash before you eat. There were the things that they couldn't eat and the things that they could eat. There were the certain clothing um, uh, requirements that they couldn't wear two fabrics together. I don't know if you know about this. They couldn't eat a Jew could not eat a cheeseburger, which is the main reason I'm not a Jew. Why do you say that? You couldn't have a meat product and a cheese product touching each other. Old Testament Jewish law, no cheeseburger. Cheese or burger, which one do you want? I want both. Okay. Now the Jews had come to Christ, some of them, and they found great liberty. It's the law of liberty, but they took it too far. 
They took it to the point of saying, we have to do all those things in Judaism. Now we're Christians. We don't have to do anything. We just believe up here. That's all. Our conduct doesn't even matter. The, um, well, I'll save that for later too. Let's keep working on this. John Calvin, he's, he's famous for saying this, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but true faith, true saving, living faith is never alone. What do you mean, John? Works are always a part of it. Somebody comes to faith in Christ, you see their life change. They start doing good deeds. They start um, abstaining from the bad stuff they were doing. They're sinning less and less and less. You mean they're perfect? No, I didn't say that. But with birth comes growth. The works are the evidence that we have true saving faith. Um, we already talked about that. Back to our equation. Faith equals salvation. No, that's no good because there's no works aren't in that equation. Oh, I know. Faith plus works equals salvation. No good. Biblically, it sounds weird, but it's faith equals salvation plus works. A natural outpouring of the, a natural result of the faith that we have is change lives. We do good now that we never did before. I never noticed the need before. I never thought about serving at a church or teaching a Bible study or singing in the choir or whatever it may be. Faith produces good works. Works do matter. Paul deals with the opposite thing, where Paul's dealing with Jews that are so used to wanting to earn their salvation by all the good deeds they're doing. See, now you owe me, God that they think the faith doesn't really save you. It's the good works. I'm earning my way to God with my good works. All our good works are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. They don't save us, but they're the evidence of faith. James and Paul are not face-to-face -face arguing. They are both defending the faith back-to-back, -back, facing two different groups. One group says, works don't really matter. It's what I believe. The other group's saying, oh no, you got to have the works. In fact, the works are what really earns. They're both wrong. You, all you need is faith, but true faith naturally produces a changed life. Good works. That's the evidence. We'll talk more about that as we go. Um, we already talked about that. We are not saved by works, but we're saved for works. Now I'll go back to Ephesians 2. We were there earlier. Do you remember? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. You're not saved by works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, we already read that, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Did you read verse 10? For we are God's workmanship, listen to this, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which Christ prepared in advance for us to do. At some point, we're going to take some more detours but, and look at some other verses. But for now, uh, let's keep rolling. So Paul, James wants us to see there's an absurd situation given in verses 15 and 16 and 17. 
The guy that claims to be a believer doesn't love somebody in need, doesn't help him. Verse 18, now he's playing devil's advocate, so to speak, having an imagined uh, debate. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds or works. Show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Okay, what's going on here? If someone, let's say you're meeting me for the first time right now, and I say, I have faith. Really, I do. Can you see it? No, it's not visible, right? Faith is invisible. What makes faith visible is works. That's what he's saying here. Have you ever seen the wind? No. No one here has ever seen the wind. Ever. Wind is moving air. Air is invisible. Therefore, whether it's moving or still, you have never seen the wind. But have you ever seen the trees bending or the grass moving or somebody's hair blowing? Have you ever felt the wind? Yes. But you can't see it. You see the result of it. Same thing for faith. You can't see whether I'm saying I have faith. So what? Talk is cheap. Do I have faith? You'd have to get to know me and see where I spend my money, how I spend my time, what I'm doing or not doing to determine it does appear he has faith. Again, only God can judge. The other thing I want you to keep in mind is several times in the Bible, more than several, a lot, the Bible attacks a problem or a situation from two different directions or dimensions, vertical and horizontal. I mentioned it earlier. Genesis has two creation accounts. Did you ever notice that? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. One is from God's viewpoint. One is from man's viewpoint. Same thing here. You say, what do you mean? All that God requires is faith. And God can see if I'm saying I have faith, he can look right into me, right? The heavenly x-ray and see he's saying it. He doesn't have real faith. Or he can see in Roy there, he's saying he has faith, and God can look into Roy's heart and see his motives, his desires, his true belief. He truly has faith. God can do that. You and I can't. We look at works. God sees faith into the person. We have to see the evidence. God doesn't need the evidence, but the evidence confirms the faith for the people around him, for God to an extent, and even for the person. In a second, we're going to get into Abraham, and that's a really interesting situation. So if you learn nothing else, remember Ken's got a dead horse. Okay. Let's, I mean, I'm beating a dead horse with this, aren't I? A um, couple of verses. Um, Matthew 3. John the Baptist is preaching. You don't need to turn there. Do you know what he says? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's works. That's the negative. Repentance. What does he mean? You used to get drunk every day. Now you're not getting drunk anymore. God's changing you. Um, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus talking. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. Because they'll say, 
boy, he really changed, Ricky. She didn't used to be that way. Heavenly perspective, God sees the faith. Earthly perspective, we see the works which are the result of faith, which brings glory to God. Matthew 7, 21, this is a scary verse. Remember the dead faith we talked about earlier? There's people that think they're saved that aren't. Matthew 7, Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he that, right for it, does the will of my father. There's the proof. Just because you say I'm a Christian, is your life displaying the works of both negative, I'm, I'm abstaining from those things that were sin that I used to do, and the positive, I'm starting to do good works I would have never thought of doing before. With birth comes growth. So here's our hypothetical objector in verses 18 and 19. Hebrews 12, 15 talks about holiness, and it says, holiness without which no man will see God. Holiness is conduct, works, right? Um, remember, James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Earlier, I mentioned the incorrect way to spell cat, K-A-T. We, we've done this in the Bible study several times. There's three aspects to saving faith. Okay, aspect number one, K, knowledge. You have to have at least a basic knowledge of who and what Jesus is, who and what you are, sinful before God, no way to save yourself. And you have to understand that Jesus came and took your place, lived the perfect life you were supposed to live, died the horrible death you were supposed to die, and offers you his righteousness in exchange for your guilt and sin when you make him your Lord and Savior. Knowledge. You have to at least understand the basics. You don't have to be a scholar or a theologian, but you have to have a basic knowledge of the truth of the Bible. K, is that enough? No, because I've got it here, but I'm still living any way I want. Number two, you have to A, agree that it's true. A, agreement or assent, A-S-C-E-N-T, agreement's better. You have to hear that truth Okay, I understand now, and I agree that it's true. There's some people you can tell them that story. Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner. You have no way to save yourself. God is holy, and they say, I understand it. Okay, knowledge. I don't agree. It's true. Goodbye, but there's some people that have the K. I get it. A, I even agree it's true. I've, I believe, but do they have the T, which is trust? Are they sitting in the stool like this, trusting only in that truth that Jesus died for their sins, or are they sort of relying on their own good works as well? With faith, with trust comes naturally the good works. I'm going to tell you the secret now. Why is it that he's saved and so is he, but he's not and neither is she, and you can see it in their lives. Why is that? Answer. Everybody who's believed in the history of the world, the second they believe, guess what happens? They're born again, their sins are forgiven, and who comes to live inside of them, class? The Holy Spirit. No wonder the Holy Spirit is the one motivating them to, you know, that guy's in need, and you could help him, the guy that lives next door. I better go help him. We may think we're doing it. I'm really becoming a nice person now. 
It's not us. It's the Holy Spirit changing us. No wonder he and she who say they're Christian, but really aren't, no wonder their lives aren't changing. There's no Holy Spirit there. They may try to change on their own, though. You'll never do it. God can change you from the inside out. When he saves us, he gives us his love. That's another evidence. Okay, let's keep rolling here. I'm just reading notes. Um, so in that example, verse 18, you, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. How would you do that? Well, I can quote scripture. I go to church. But Roy, who really has faith, says, what are you doing in your life? Nothing. Nothing's really changed. Do you see what, where we're going here? Look at the, the next part of this section. Verse 19. You believe that there's one God or that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You believe that there's one God. Remember, he's writing to Jews. The Jews had a thing in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Hebrew Shema. The main part of it they would recite is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. And it goes on from there. Okay? So the surrounding peoples were all polytheists. Poly meaning many, theists meaning God. They believed in all kinds of the God of the sun and the moon and sex and wine and food and the God of crops and the God of transportation. And the, they had a God for everything. The God of water. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God. Christianity is monotheistic. So he's saying to this person, you believe there's one God. Yeah, that's good. I believe in God. I believe in Tokyo, too. I believe there's a place called Tokyo. Have you ever been there? No. I've seen it on the map. I've seen photos, I think. But does Tokyo's existence change your life? No. But I believe it's there. That's knowledge, the K. It's even the A. I'm not trusting in Tokyo to save my life. You believe there's, there's one God. Great. The demons believe that and shudder. Do you know that demons have really good orthodox theology? They know. They say to Jesus when he's on the earth, you remember? Have you come to torment us before the time? What do you have to do with us, son of God? They know. They've got the K. They don't have the A. They don't agree. They're not trusting in it. So just believing there's a God, it's all up here, K and A, doesn't cut it. Trust, deeds, that's where he's getting at. Um, the demons believe and shudder. Do you know why they shudder? Because they know the day's coming, right? Christ returns, judgment. Verse 20, you foolish person. Who's he, who's he calling foolish? The person that says, I believe in God. It doesn't matter what you do. It's all up here. I believe. You foolish person, verse 20, do you want evidence that faith without works is useless like Ken's dead horse? Was it of any use to me? None. Useless. It wasn't a sick horse. It was a dead horse. There's such a thing as dead faith, which is no faith at all, just like a dead horse is no horse at all. You want evidence that faith without works is useless. Translation, it's not really faith at all. Here's the evidence. 
Wasn't our father Abraham, verse 21, considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, do you know this story? Turn to Genesis. We'll do this very quickly, hopefully. You know me. Quickly is like two hours. Genesis 15. Go all the way back to Genesis. It's the easiest book of the Bible to find. It's right after the book of Table of Contents. Genesis 15. Um, God speaks with Abraham and, uh, and makes a unilateral contract with him, basically. Um, years later, he's going to offer his son, Isaac. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Who's Abraham? You say Abraham's the first Jew. Before Abraham, there were no Jewish people. There was no Judaism. God spoke, chose one dude named Abram, changed his name to Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish faith. Among Jews, there were two people, and still are, that are the most revered. Yes, they revere King David, uh, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all that. But they really revere Moses, who brought the law. And they really revere Abraham. Okay, so um, look at verse six. I'm trying to do this quickly uh, of Genesis 15. Abram, that's Abraham, believed the Lord and God credited to him, credited it to him as righteousness. Wait a minute now. No works, but God can see with x-ray vision, can't he? He really believes me. He tells Abraham, God does, I want you to leave your homeland where you're comfortable with your family, leave everything and go to a land I'll show you. No travel brochure, you just got to trust me. Take your wife and go. And you know what Abram does? Goes. His work of leaving proved he believed, but this is before that. He already, God already knows this guy's faithful. Seven chapters later, in Genesis 22, God gives Abram the ultimate, Abraham, the ultimate test. Do you remember the story? To me, it's the most amazing story in the Old Testament, surely in the book of Genesis. God tests Abraham in chapter 22 and basically says to Abram, I want you to give up the thing you love the most, which is his son, his only son. Remember the story? Some of you do. And he says, verse 2, Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there to me. Kill the thing you love to show me you love me more than that thing. You say, whoa, 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 human sacrifice. And don't worry, nobody dies. Abraham gets up early in the morning and goes, we're going to Moriah, son. Get the donkey in the wood. Let's go. He acts on the faith. He gets all the way up the mountain. He's ready to kill his son. And God says, no, wait. I know you believe. You don't have to kill your son. It's a beautiful story. If you were here, I don't know, six, eight months ago, I gave a sermon on this 22 passage and the ways it refers to Jesus Christ. 
It's a beautiful story. I, if I go into that, we'll be here till midnight. And I know some of you have to work tomorrow, so we won't do that. Let's take our two minute break and stretch our aging bodies. And I'm going to just turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're right in the middle of this kind of intense section on faith without deeds, faith with deeds or works. Um, so we're talking about Abraham. Abraham, God calls him righteous in chapter 15, and he proves it, he's saying here, to men horizontally in verse 21. He was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. He was willing to give up the thing he loved the most for God because God asked him to. He didn't die and God provided a lamb. Do you remember that? A male lamb with his horns stuck in some thorns, which sounds like the lamb of God with a thorn crown on his head, but we won't go there now. Um, verse 23. Oh, verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were cooperating, is literally how it reads in the Greek, Read, working together. Faith and works, working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Translation, what we do matters. It proves our faith. By the way, if we are doing good deeds, it is proof God already knows, but it is proof to the outside world that someone is saved. It is also beneficial if you happen to be the one that's hungry or in need of clothing or some blessing that the person is giving out horizontally. It is also a faith builder, listen, for the person doing the works. What do you mean, Joe? This. Do you think Abram's faith was stronger or weaker after the Isaac incident? Way stronger, right? He trusted God. Um, I'm so tempted to teach from Genesis, but we, uh, we got to keep moving. Okay. Um, so there's two perspectives. Um, keep your finger here. Now go to Galatians chapter three. I want to show you the one perspective I mentioned earlier. We won't be here long. Galatians, right before Ephesians. If you found Ephesians, Galatians is easy. Go to chapter three of Galatians, verses 10 and 11. Notice the wording. Galatians 3, 10. All who, listen, rely on, trusting in, Rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you're relying on the law, on your behavior to save you as the means of justification, you're in big trouble because you're going to mess up just like I do, just like everyone in this room does and everybody on Zoom, especially some of you. I see you there. Okay. Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Faith comes first, but faith produces naturally good works. Um, okay, so we're back to Abraham. Uh, let's see. Romans 4, 2 says, one, the one who works cannot boast before God. 
In the book of Revelation, believers are given crowns, rewards for the works they do. And if you read that passage, you find that they take the crowns off and throw them at the feet of Christ because they realize, as you and I should, every good thing we've ever done, it's all really his doing. I wouldn't have done this on my own whatever the good deed was. I wouldn't have stopped using alcohol or drugs or any bad things that you may have been doing. It's all God's glory. That's why the crowns come off and they cast them at Jesus's feet. Um, yeah, we're going to skip that. Um, okay, so the faith was co cooperated. The works and the faith were cooperating is a good way to put it. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness because God knew this is the real deal. His faith, he is going to do this in the future for people. It helped to see it two different perspectives. Okay. So who's Abraham again, the revered father of the Jewish faith, the first Jewish man, greatly revered. He is Jewish. He's a man. He's revered. Okay. Why are you saying this, Joe? Because read the next verse. It's mind-blowing. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? What? Who? Rahab the who? Rahab is a woman. Rahab is a Gentile. She is a Canaanite woman who is a prostitute, someone who sells sex for money. Whoa. Talk about Abraham and then the other extreme, right? What is going on here? Okay. It might surprise you to learn the story of Rahab um, and the result of that. Uh, story. Rahab ends up in the genealogy of, wait for it, Jesus Christ. What? A woman? They never put women in genealogies, the Jews. They put Rahab in. They would never put a Gentile. They did with Rahab. They would certainly not put a prostitute. They did. She's in there. What? It's, it's bizarre. Okay. Let's look at um, the story uh, of Rahab. And so for that, let's go to Joshua. Um, and we don't have a ton of time to do this. Um, let's see. Okay, so Joshua, that's first of all. Joshua is uh, one of the first, uh, I think it's seventh or eighth book off the top of my head. And Joshua, I think it's chapter two. So the Jews are hoping to Take the city of Jericho, which is a Gentile pagan city where there is all kinds of bad, evil stuff going on. God intends to give Jericho to the Jews. The Jews send spies to check out the city. They go there and they stay at the house of Rahab, who's uh, running a house of ill repute, shall we call it, right? And she lives in the wall there. The spies, the Jews, do not sleep with her. There's none of that going on. They just, it's a good place to hide there. She allows them to hide there. And she actually has faith. She, has, she knows about God. 
um, the God of Israel. So verse four, but the women had taken the two men and hidden them because some people come from Jericho. She lies and says, oh, those guys, yeah, they were here, but they left. If you run now, you'll catch them. So they leave. Um, so, uh, so they leave, verse seven, verse eight, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to the Jewish spies, I know that the Lord, she means the Jewish God, has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Remember that, Moses? She knows. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted. Let's skip down. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Please swear to me, verse 12, by the Lord, that you'll show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. She hides them and helps them. They end up coming back, the Jews, and they take the city of Jericho. And guess who survives? Rahab and her family. It never says it, but it's implied in case you're wondering. She completely stops being a prostitute. She repents a good work. Besides the positive good work of hiding the spies, she repents of her sin. She ends up marrying a Jew and they have a child. And the child is Boaz. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, and that's why she's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter, I think it's one, I have it in my notes somewhere, it's either one or two. Um, yeah, um, okay, so let's see, that's verse 25, yeah, okay, there we go. Um, he, Rahab is in the hall of fame, faith chapter, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 31, um, yeah, Rahab married Salmon, um, who invented salmon fish, if you've ever had salmon. No, I'm just kidding. Silly, silly, silly. Um, anyway, and their son was Boaz, the husband of Ruth. Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, is her direct descendant. Isn't that weird? Yes. But isn't it beautiful? I couldn't relate to Jesus as much if his whole genealogy was a bunch of perfect people all the way down. Why Rahab? Rahab is a picture of you and me, right? Who by grace have an encounter with God. God saves her and we become part of God's family. It's a pretty amazing, amazing story. Um, yeah, we talked about that. James's readers are excusing themselves saying, we don't need to do good works. He's trying to show them with two Old Testament examples they would remember. These people had faith and it showed in what they did and said. Um, it's a pagan woman. It's a pretty amazing story. Okay, let's keep rolling, shall we? Are you still awake? Say amen. Oh, that's pretty good. Online, are you still awake? How many of you are there? Okay. Um, verse 26. Uh, 
as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, without works is what? Sick? Dead. Faith without any works. This is a call to all the readers, whether it's you and I or people a thousand years ago or the readers when he wrote this in the 40s of the first century to examine their lives and say, do I have faith? Do I believe? Yes. Is my life showing the change that these kind of works are talking about? Am I doing these things? Am I abstaining from sin? Am I repenting? Am I doing good works outwardly? Am I worshiping God upward? A test of faith. As the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. Translation, like Ken's horse, it's no faith at all, right? It's a said faith. It's the person in Matthew 7 that says, Lord, Lord, and doesn't really believe. Um, Jesus says to that, those people, by the way, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Scary. Um, let's see. What did Rahab do? Well, she helped out those Jewish spy guys by hiding them. Listen, she risked her life. Had they found the spies, what do you think the Jericho people would have done to Rahab and the spies? They would have killed them all. She risked what she had, her life, in order to help um, God's people. Okay. Works prove faith. They're the evidence of faith. Um, this will come up again in this book. I just want to warn you. Um, in the email that I sent to each of you, I purposely made a mistake in the punctuation. I usually put Tuesday, semicolon, and then I tell you what we're going to talk about. Did anybody notice? It says, it should say, faith, comma, works, comma, and taming of the tongue. The subject line I put in there says, faith works, no comma, meaning what? It's a sentence. Faith, true, saving, living faith works, right? Not two separate things. Works come from the faith. Okay. Those of you that had, had you noticed that, you would have gotten an A, but now you have a C minus. Let's move on. Chapter three. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Oh, I just tremble when I read this verse because I hear I am teaching your word. If you don't think I take this seriously, you're wrong. I don't want to get it wrong. I'm confident, though, when I get to heaven, God's going to sit me down and explain the 800 things I taught over the course of 31 years. You were wrong on this. You were way off on this. I'm doing the best I can, Lord. Help me by your spirit. Why do you think I want his spirit to teach this class and not me? Um, not many should become teachers. What's implied is that everybody and his grandmother were becoming Christians and going, you know, I'm going to teach a Bible class. And they weren't ready. They weren't sol solidly grounded in Christian doctrine, in the other scriptures, in the Old Testament, understanding salvation. They didn't have their lives together enough with the Lord yet. Anybody, if, you, if this guy, Harold, becomes a Christian, and four weeks later, he wants to teach a Bible study, I would tell him, 
don't do it. I appreciate that you have that desire. It's way too early. Listen, don't be a teacher. There's a stricter judgment. No wonder, right? There are teachers on Christian television and radio who are teaching wrong doctrine, misleading, literally with an M, millions of people. We've talked about them, haven't we? Right? Um, there are all kinds of, um, let's see, oh, I wanted to do that, but let's do this instead. Um, I have the list somewhere. Uh-oh. I don't know where it is. Uh, maybe it's behind here. No. Um, hmm. Well, I'll do it from memory. I'll give you a few examples. Joseph Smith, you ever heard of him? There's a Bible teacher. He started Mormonism. Millions of people have been led astray by Joseph Smith, Brigham Young. Teachers, I'm going to teach God's word. What did he teach? Men can become gods. Yes, I knew it. Not you women, just the men. Once we become gods, we get our own planet and our family gets to join us on that planet. Biblical? Heck no. Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, the devil. Lucifer rebelled because he was jealous that God chose brother Jesus and not G Lucifer to save the planet. God, the father, used to be a man just like you and me. And he became a God, and you can too. Bad teaching. Don't become a teacher. They can mislead many. Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, started out as, a, I believe, a Methodist minister. Ended up starting a non-Christian cult, just like Mormonism, called Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? What do they believe, Joe? They have their own translation of the Bible, the New World Translation where they just change whatever they want that doesn't agree with their theology. Jesus is not God in Jehovah's Witnesses theology. He's a God, small g, but he's not God Almighty. Um, there's no such thing as hell uh, in Jehovah's Witness theology. Um, all kinds of error. We could go on to all the guys, the name it and claim it guys that are on the radio and on television. Be careful for those of you listening to my voice and read when you go home, Acts 17, 11. It sounds like 7, 11. It's 17, 11. It talks about the Bereans who were more noble because even though Paul was Paul, the apostle Paul, whatever he said, they would go home and get out the scriptures and see if it lined up with the Bible. That's your instruction if you remember nothing else tonight. Whether it's me or your pastor or a guy on TV or anybody you see on the internet that's got some Christian doctrine, if it doesn't line up with scripture, you're supposed to throw it away, including me. And you ought to do the right thing and come to me and go, you know, you blew it and you taught the wrong thing. I would want to know. I take this seriously. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. Those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now he's going to introduce the subject of the tongue. And I don't mean the tongue like the tongue. He means what you say is a big deal. 
Watch. We all stumble in many ways. Can I get an amen on that? Meaning we all sin. By the way, that doesn't mean we're constantly losing our salvation and then we get it back. And then I lost it on Thursday and I got it back Friday morning. He means we stumble. The word means to fall, slip and fall, to like a trip kind of a thing, to trip. There's a saying that on, the, uh, on Noah's Ark, that God closed the door. Do you remember that? And there they are, Noah and seven other people, his family, and a bunch of animals. And it probably didn't smell that good on there, in there, but they're in there. God closed the door. You read about the description of the ark. There aren't a lot of doors. Could Noah slip on the ark? Yes. Could he fall overboard and lose his salvation? No way. Same for you. But we all stumble. And what else, James? Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. The word means mature. Able to keep their whole body in check. Seems weird, doesn't it? It's not. The average uh, person, how many words do you think the average person speaks in a day? <laughs> oh, you're in trouble. Roy, Roy said man or woman. Oh, write your letters to Roy, post office box. The average person speaks between 18,000 and 25,000 words per day. You say, well, you're way ahead of that, Joe. Well, I'm teaching Bible study, so sue me. 18,000 to 25,000 words per day. Wow. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue reveals the heart. Listen, there's all different ways we can sin. And all sin starts in the mind and in the heart. But the way we sin the most is what we say. Okay. The Jewish rabbis used to say that some had said that the tongue is like a knife and they changed it and said, no, the tongue is like an arrow, meaning it can, it can injure or kill at a distance. What you say can hurt somebody for the rest of their life or encourage and bless somebody for the rest of their life. Um, so this is another test of how are we doing with our mouth, with our tongue. Um, one commentator wrote, everyone carries a concealed weapon. Behind a cage of teeth, there's a tongue. Somebody stuck their tongue out. I saw you back there, Joyce. Um, okay. How can you sin with your tongue, with your, what you say? Listen to this. Right out of the scriptures, the Bible refers to a wicked tongue, a corrupt tongue, a bitter tongue, an angry tongue, a crafty tongue, a flattering tongue, a slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, biting, sensual, vile, foolish, boasting, murmuring, complaining, cursing, contentious, tail-bearing, whispering, exaggerating tongue. So there's all kinds of ways you can sin with your tongue, aren't there? Um, the tongue is the instant expression of the heart. You ever say something and wish you could take those words back? On a computer, you do something, there's the undo button. 
You ever, you ever use that? Oh man, does it come in handy? Uh, I won't go into that, but once it's out there, it's out there. Matthew 12, Jesus says, will be judged by every idle word. Ouch. Um, Isaiah meets the Lord. Okay. And he falls on his face. And you know what he says? I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. J James is about to go into a lengthy discussion about what we say and how much it matters. And controlling the tongue, once you do that, it's easier to control the whole rest of your whole body. With our tongues, there's all kinds of ways we can sin. We'll get into that uh, more in a second. Verse let's see verse two anyone who is at not never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep the whole body in check verse three when we we when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us we can turn the whole animal you say what does that have to do with anything now we've got ken's horse now come back to life what he's talking about here is the tongue relatively speaking is a very small part of the body. You wouldn't think it could do that much damage. He's saying, oh no, small size doesn't matter. It can do a great deal of damage. Example, verse three, a tiny little bit in a very powerful horse can control the whole horse. You can turn the whole animal or take ships, verse four. Although they're large, some of them huge, and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. That's the key phrase, where the pilot wants to go, where the guy holding the reins of the horse wants to go. Listen, you cannot claim, and neither can I, it just slipped out. It may feel that way, but what you said that was angry, that was vindictive, that was revengeful, that was vengeful, that was derogatory, that was evil, that was a lie, is what was in here, right? Some people are better at it. I have a friend, Richard, who's probably watching tonight. He's good at this. You ask him something, he thinks about it. And he answers, there are those of us who are wordy, can you tell, who shoot from the hip. We just say stuff and then go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I should have thought of a different way to say it. Controlling the tongue. This is a thing that the Holy Spirit can do in us. Well, then why doesn't he? I'm a Christian. The answer is the success or failure or the amount of good deeds or bad deeds or bad words or helpful, encouraging words, listen, is directly proportional to, wait for it, how much you and I submit to the Holy Spirit or don't. How much Sinatra theology do you have? I'm going to do it my way, right? Instead of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, so we've got ships, we've got horses, they're large and driven by strong winds, a tiny little rudder steers them just like the tongue. Likewise, verse five, the tongue is a very small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. 
Is that a sin? Absolutely. Listen, there's nothing you can boast about in your life unless it has to do with God. Yes, but I have great talent. I won an Olympic gold medal. And who gave you the talent and the health and the ability and the opportunity to do that? Oh, God. And the genetics, God. Yes, but I have two PhDs. And I, who gave you the mind and the opportunity and the authority and the I have musical ability, art ability. I can build houses. I can draw houses like him. Who gave you the ability? There's nothing that you have that you weren't given. Remember chapter one? Every good and perfect gift is from the father of lights. It's all God's glory. And yet we love to boast, don't we? I love when somebody wins a gold medal or the Super Bowl and says, I want to thank my Lord and Savior. He gave me the talents that I have, the ability, the... instead of ain't I great. Okay. Now that I made you all feel guilty, let's keep rolling, shall we? Verse, still in verse five, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Remember the fires we've had in the mountains here, those of you that live in the Sierra, like most of us, right? Those fires cover thousands of square miles, thousands of acres. I don't know about square miles, but huge areas, they don't start big, they start small, like words. We'll get to that in a second. In October of 1871, there was a woman in Chicago named Mrs. O'Leary. You know the story? Supposedly, her cow knocked over a lantern or a candle and started a little fire in Mrs. O'Leary's barn. The more I read about this this week, I found out that the cow story probably isn't true. But the fire did start in Mrs. O'Leary's barn somehow from one little flame, one little spark. We're not sure. What's your point, Joe? That little spark caused the Chicago fire. 17,500 buildings were burned. 300 people died, 125,000 people were made homeless, all from one spark or flame. Um, do we want to go there? No, we're running out of time. Next week, we'll go to Proverbs um, to look at some verses about this. You ever heard this saying? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Remember that? Is that true? Heck no. Sticks and stones, yes, will break your bones. That part's true. Names will never hurt me. Word, you can't hurt me with your words. Oh, yes, you'd be surprised the damage you can do. People that are abused as children live with it the rest of their lives. And the abuse doesn't have to just be physical. It can be verbal abuse. You'll never amount to anything, you idiot. You're a mistake. There's so many hurtful things we can say. We need to be very careful with our words. What are the sins of the tongue? Bearing false witness, lying, right? Oh, you could lie in an email and you don't use your tongue. Come on, it's still words, right? I'm lying in a text, but I'm not going to say it out loud. Lying. What else? Taking the name of the Lord in vain. Is that a big deal? It's one of the top 10, right? Commandments. Gossiping. Oh, that's not a Yes, it is. You know what I heard about so-and-so? I'm just telling you this so you'll know how to pray. Gossiping, slandering another person, saying something that's not true about them to hurt their reputation. 
trying to move yourself up a peg and move them down. Angry words, Matthew 5 talks about that. Coarse jesting, dirty jokes, swearing, being a false teacher. We already talked about that. False doctrine, being overly critical, boastful, flattery. How about this one? Grumbling. You ever meet those people? They're just grumblers. We, a couple of people are watching, I've known since junior high school, and we have a friend. I won't say his name. They're going to know who I mean. He's the kind of guy, our little joke about him is that if you came into a ton of money and you bought the guy a Mercedes brand new, he would come outside and you'd hand him the keys and he'd go, oh, white, huh? That's going to show the dirt. Oh, leather interior, huh? That's going to be hard to take care of. He's the kind of guy that sees the one little cloud when the rest of the sky is totally blue, grumbling. There's all kinds of ways we can sin with our words, with our tongues. Go back to James. Um, what a great forest fire can be set by a tongue. By the way, when you lie, are you aware of this? You can't lie just once because you got to lie again to back up the lie and remember what, what the lie was so you don't mess it up and you just keep keeps on going, doesn't it? The fire's been set. The tongue, verse six, is also a fire, a world, a cosmos of evil, it reads in Greek, among the parts of the body. Listen to this. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the course of one's life on fire and itself, and it is itself set on fire, listen to this, by hell. Where do those words come from? There's your answer. They come from within, but Satan's going, just say it. Just tell her. Give her a piece of your mind. Tell her what you think. We got to be careful with what we say. We got to be careful with what we do. These are the tests that we've been talking about. Um, in the remaining time, I want to go back to the faith and works thing very quickly. We don't have time to turn all to all these by... Uh, in the time left. Romans 11, 6, salvation he's talking about. If it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace is things that are given. Listen, people get messed up on, if I don't say this, I'm afraid there will be people that will misunderstand what we've talked about tonight. They're going to go home and say, I really need to behave, and then I'll be saved. Listen, if you have faith, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're already saved because of your faith in Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Well, where do works come in? Brownie points? Do you save them up and you can get a toaster if you... Listen, in heaven, right? They have toasters. No, listen. Works are done not to earn, not to deserve salvation, but when we realize the ingratitude for what God has given us, I want to please him. I want to do those things. Oh, you're trying to earn your salvation? No, I already have it. Somebody has given me a hundred trillion dollars worth of spiritual blessings. I hate to use money, but right. And so I want to do whatever I can to please that person. Oh, to earn the money? No, I already have the money. I've got the salvation. These things I've written to you that you may know that you have, that you are saved, that you have salvation, that you have eternal life. First John 5. 
What's your point? When you and I realize how much God has done for us and given us, won't it make us want to please him, to do the good works, to abstain from the bad things, to obey what he says, to make him truly Lord and master? That's the key. And we're late on time and I'm getting dirty looks. Let's close with prayer, shall we? Thanks for being here. I hope you can be here next week. Let's close. Father, thank you for this portion of scripture. It's very important. Help us to be doers of the word, to really learn it and obey it, God. By the power of your spirit, help us to submit. Help us to examine ourselves in these areas, how we do it and what we say. Do we say one set of words at church and a whole other set at work or at home or with our friends? Show us. Are we ignoring need that we know about that where we can, we have the wherewithal to be able to help somebody financially or with food or with clothing or with help with their garage door or whatever it may be. Our works matter, God. We want to glorify you and bring glory to your name, to the people around us. Make us shining lights that when we do good works, people see it and give the glory as we should to you, our Father. Bless these truths, God. May they change the way we live and even do and even speak. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Those of you on Zoom, we'll see you next time, hopefully. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. Thanks for being here. God bless.